Revelation chapter 16. I'll read verses 12 through 21. Hear now God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people. And they cursed God for the plague of the hail, because the plague was so severe. The grass withers And the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. Amen. Let's pray. God, we do thank you for your word. Thank you for preserving it for us that we might have it this day in a language that we can understand. But Father, we confess, we admit that we need more than physical understanding. We need spiritual understanding. We need you to open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things. We need you, O Spirit of God, to teach us and train us and correct us, even rebuke us for righteousness' sake. Would you work in our hearts to make us more like Jesus? Father, I pray for your people. I pray that they would be encouraged and challenged, even motivated by your word this day. Father, that you would faithfully minister unto their hearts. And I pray, O God, that you would help me, your servant. I pray that you would protect me from error. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing and acceptable unto you, O God, for you alone are my rock and my redeemer. You are indeed steadfast. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Dad? Dad? Mom? Are we there yet? Four lovely words, right? Four words that have become the battle cry. The battle cry of countless travel-weary children, and let's be honest, even some of us adults. Are we there yet? Is the unifying protest 
of all those who've been sequestered to the back seats of countless vehicles, road warriors who are bored, tired, restless, and perhaps even a bit ornery. But are we there yet is more than a question. It's actually a cry of yearning. It's a yearning cry for that blessed moment when we will finally reach our final destination. Are we there yet? Perhaps as we've studied the book of Revelation together, perhaps you found yourself asking this question as well. Hey, pastor, are we there yet? You're buckled into your pews and you're taking in the sights and sounds all around the pages contained in this book. And maybe you've grown restless, restless with the journey, and you're just ready to make it to the end, to the final destination. And whether for you it's a desperate plea for those blessed joys of heaven we've encountered, or perhaps it's a, a weary cry to be delivered from these crashing waves of judgments that we see on every page. Maybe you're just ready to be done. You're ready to reach the end of the story. Well, I have some good news for you this morning. No, we obviously haven't come to the end of the book. There's Still six more chapters, and we're going to take a break after this week, and we'll come back and finish this year, but there's six more chapters. And though we do actually come to the end of our current series this morning, it's not necessarily that final destination you might be anticipating. Nevertheless, we are coming to an end, the end. We're coming to the end and we hear it with the words coming from the temple in verse 17. It is done. It is done. You see, in the verses before us, we have certainly come to an end, to the end of the age, to that great and final day when Jesus will return. And although we're going to have to wait a little bit longer, just a few chapters you're going to have to wait to see the full beauty and glory of our heavenly destination. We do get a glimpse of it today because it's contrasted with the fate that this world certainly has to face. So this morning, we are going to come face to face with an end, with three ends that make up the whole of this final end, our final destination. And if you're taking notes, it's going to be these three ends that will make up our outline this morning. I know my mixed southern midwestern draw is not in, it's end. Three ends this morning. Our first is the end of the world. The end of the world as we know it. And no, I'm not going to sing that song. Last week, as we looked at the earlier part of chapter 16, we saw these bowls of judgment being poured out by angels upon the various parts of the earth and upon the earthly rulers and their kingdoms. And you may remember that when that sixth bowl was poured out, we saw a picture of the kings of the whole world 
kings who are under the influence of the counterfeit trinity of Satan, here spoken of as the dragon and the beast and the false prophet. We saw these kings assembling together for battle, for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. We saw them coming together at a place called Armageddon, Mount Megiddo in the Hebrew. They come together. They're assembling to battle, to battle against the one true king, to battle against that king's kingdom, to battle against the church. They come to put an end, to destroy righteousness and even the righteous one, if they are able. Now remember, Revelation is a book of cycles. We'll cycle through this age from the ascension of Jesus till his return. This is cycle five. We've got two more left. So we're brought once again to the end here. Remember in this cycle, we had a picture at the very beginning, the dragon waiting for the woman to give birth, who is the Christ, right? And he's waiting to devour and the Christ escapes. And then of course, the dragon goes after The church, after Christ, goes after the church. This is the pursuit. We see it coming to its fulfillment at this battle. The kings, the rulers of the earth are ready to wage war. And you're going to see this again. We're in chapter 19. But we see a picture here, them gathering. And what does verse 17 tell us? It tells us that the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air into the air, that is, into the earthly realm of Satan. The one who you might remember in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2, is called what? The prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And when that happens, when that bowl is poured out unto the air, the earth responds. The earth answers. Look at verse 18. It tells us that there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake, such as there had never been since man was on the earth. Look at verse 20. It says that every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. I feel like we've heard this before. Maybe you're asking if you don't really fully understand the cycle, saying, how many times can the world end, right? That's because we're getting multiple pictures of the end of the world. Do you remember Revelation 6, 12 through 14? What did it speak of? A great earthquake, the sky vanishing like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. We're seeing a recapitulation of the same thing, except this time it's more intense. The descriptions intensify as we go through The book, as we come to that great and final day, actually descriptions that Jesus himself used when he taught of his second coming. This is what we're seeing again. The earth that has been corrupted together with mankind and Adam's sin and condemned by its rejection of God's son responds. It's shattered. It is melted away. In the day of final judgment. This should remind us 
what the author of Hebrews says about this great judgment day over in Hebrews chapter 12. You can turn with me there if you would like, or you can listen as I read. Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 26. Contrasting this great and final day with the day of God's giving the law to Moses at Sinai, this is what he says, picking up toward the middle end of verse 26. Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And then thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. You see, in in a reference to Haggai 2.6, we're told that God will indeed one day shake all the heavens and all the earth, He will remove objects that for us symbolize permanence, right? Things like mountains and islands. They're strong and secure. God is going to sweep them away in destruction. This present physical world is going to be shaken and and purged so that it can be, as, as Jesus describes it in Matthew 19, 28, the world will be regenerated or renewed Over in Romans 8, 23, Paul speaks of this renewal. He calls it creation itself being set free from its bondage to corruption and obtaining the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So you see, while the earth indeed, as as Paul says, waits with eager longing for that day, when that day finally comes, The old will surely be shaken off in order to make way for the new. The new and glorious kingdom, the new heavens and the new earth. And when we make it over to chapters 21 and 22, we're going to get to see beautiful pictures of this new kingdom. This kingdom that cannot be shaken. A kingdom where we will indeed worship God in his presence forever and ever. But that's not the picture we have here. The picture we're given here is a reminder of judgment, the judgment that is to come. It's a call for us to see the full and total horror of sin and the effects that it has had upon all creation. I mean, be sure of this. Sin has cosmic consequences. One day... Every single thing that has been stained by sin, even the earth itself, is going to be renewed and restored through the fires of judgment. This is indeed not necessarily what the song sung about, but it is the end of the world as we know it. The end of the world as we experience it. And it's the end of the world as we see it, shaken in judgment, making way for the new. And the end of the world brings with it the second end that we see in our passage this morning, and that is the end of worldly society, the end of worldly 
society. Look with me again at verse 19. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. Most scholars agree that in John's day, the great city would have been a reference to Rome. Great city would have been a reference to Rome. Uh, Rome was the capital, not only of the Mediterranean world, but really the known world at the time. If that is so, then we must make a connection. We must see Rome as being identified as a symbol of this worldly system. And notice that it's taken together with another symbol of the worldly system, a more ancient symbol, that is Babylon. These two great cities, which represent two great empires, they stand as symbols of the way of the beast, of which we've already talked about in prior chapters. They're corrupt world systems in service to Satan and in opposition to Christ. And not just Rome and Babylon, but every worldly power that's set up against God. Every worldly system instead of godly system. Leon Morris, a commentator and pastor, notes that the great city stands for man ordering his affairs apart from God. Along with the pride of human achievement, the godlessness of those who put their trust in man. The great city represents those who would put their trust in man rather than in God. But for all its earthly glory, For all of its wondrous appearance here on earth, on the last day, all of these anti-Christian world societies will indeed be finally and fully judged. Under the influence of Satan, who we've said is the prince of the power of the air, the one who has manipulated and empowered worldly opposition to God ever since he led Adam and Eve into sin in the garden, The great city who is under Satan's influence will come under judgment. And look, it says it's going to be split into three parts. Symbolic, right? In other words, it will be completely destroyed. And as it is, notice, I want you to see the further implications of this destruction. What does the text say? It's not only Rome and Babylon. It's the great cities of the nations that fell. This doesn't mean that cities are bad, okay? It's not what this means. These are representative. Remember, Revelation is a picture book, not a puzzle book. These are pictures of worldliness, godlessness, the ways of the world, foolishness set up against God and his ways. The great cities of the nations fell. You see, it's not just Rome or some later great capital of evil that everyone tries to figure out who it is. No, it's not just these that are decimated. It's all, all of the world's cultural, political, economic, and sociological centers that are toppled down. It's the ways of the world that are thrown aside. On the great and final day of judgment, the city of man 
The cities of man are pushed aside to make way for the true and final city of God. They are thrown down. So I think about John. I think about the early church. I think about the church through the ages. I think about maybe even today. You know those times when it feels like God has forgotten about his people? At a time when it seems as if God is just turning a blind eye to all the corruption that is on the earth? At times when it seems like the kingdom of the world is going to overthrow the kingdom of Christ? Do you know those times? Those times have existed throughout history. It's at this time that God will prove himself faithful and true. He will remember Babylon the great. God hasn't forgotten. God will remember. So we have to remember this. God has not forgotten the affairs of the world. God is not neglecting the terrible injustices taking place against his people. God is most certainly there, and he is most certainly not silent. His voice has spoken. He will indeed bring an end to everything that is set up in opposition to his son, our king, Jesus Christ. He will break the worldly powers into pieces. And it's not pretty. In Revelation 19, we'll get a clearer picture of it. It's a terrifying picture. The kings of the world will be overrun by the one who sits on the horse, faithful and true. He will put an end. God is not silent. He is certainly there. He has spoken, and the warning is clear. Think about Matthew 7, Luke 5. Those who don't build their house upon the rock, what happens? It's going to be washed away. How does Jesus describe? In 727 of Matthew, he says, Their fall will be great. Their fall will be great great. Such is the fall of all those under the influence of the counterfeit satanic trinity who rise up in opposition to God and his kingdom. Such is the judgment that awaits them. So we've seen that at the end of this age, it's going to bring the end of the world and the end of worldly society. Now I want us to see that third end, the end of sin and sinners. The end of sin and sinners. In the end, in the very end, sin itself is going to be brought to an end. And even sinners. This is made clear in both verses 19 and 21. You can look in verse 19. It says that God remembered Babylon the great, quote, to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And in verse 21, we find great hailstones about 100 pounds in weight, I can't even imagine this, fall from heaven upon people. That's terrifying. 
It's terrifying to think of. We've talked a lot about wrath and judgment as we went through these chapters. So you know that even though it's a terrifying description, it's an accurate one because we've seen worse. It's all horrible. We've seen it many times in this book. And we have many convictions, but I hope one that we've gained from studying this book is that God takes sin seriously. God takes sin very seriously. Sin is so much more than just some deviation from the owner's manual, right? It's not just an oops or am I bad. It's a personal offense against the holy God who has created us. So God responds to it with the fury of his wrath and in perfect justice. For you can't read this and not see that certainly the punishment fits the crime. Hasn't Babylon made others drunk with her abominations? At least that's what we're going to see in the next chapter. So now Babylon will be drunk with the terrors of divine judgment, drinking the cup of God's wrath right down to the final dregs. Every bit of it. And we've talked about this, and when I come to passages like this, I'm reminded how often we say that God hates the sin, but loves the sinner. And that's true, isn't it? Isn't that true? That God loves sinners? Do you not believe that? I mean, as long as we understand what it means that God loves sinners, right? Certainly he loves sinners so much that he did what? He sent his one and only son into the world, right? He did that so that they might believe in him. The, the gospel is freely offered. And those who are given faith by his spirit, those who are changed, they express faith in Jesus. And what happens? They, they receive the right to become the children of God. They're rescued, redeemed, restored, fully forgiven. Isn't that a blessing? God loved you so much that he did that for you. God loves sinners so much that he did this for them. Is it not true that God loves the sinner? But the next step we have to take. But what about those who don't believe? What of those who reject him? What of those who turn away from the free offer of salvation through Jesus Christ? What of those who refuse to be rescued from sin and the judgment that is to come? What happens to them? What happens to the ones who right here it says, look at verse 21. They cursed God for the plague of the hail because the plague was so severe. Even that didn't cause them to turn. What happens to them? The picture we have here is of creation itself rising up in violence against them. It's utter destruction against utter disobedience. It's a sad reality. Should cause us to mourn. Should give us a, a heart of compassion for those who we know who reject the gospel. Even those we don't know. God, where can you send me to tell other people about Jesus? That building's on fire and there's someone that needs to be rescued. I want to run in. I want to tell them of the hope to come. Even if they are cursing God and dying. God indeed will punish wickedness. He will punish 
sin and sinners. And I'll tell you for the thousandth time, if you are in Christ, that wrath that you deserve was taken upon him, upon the cross, as he became sin for you, so that in him you might become the righteousness of God. God is still just in the justifier. He didn't just overlook your sin and say, eh, no big deal. It was such a big deal that he poured out his wrath on his son on the cross for you. So you will either bear God's wrath by receiving Christ's righteousness in exchange, or you will bear the wrath of God in hell forever. That's what the text tells us. So the destruction of wicked Babylon proves that all who drink the wine of sinful pleasure and remain unforgiven are going to receive a punishment from God that they deserve. The cup of the fury of God's wrath will produce infinite condemnation and eternal woe. God at the very end will bring an end to sin and to sinners. They're going to be swept away into the lake of fire. And those of us who remain will dwell with God in the new heavens and the new earth in the place where there will no longer be any stain of sin. Can you imagine that? No stain of sin, a place of, of perfect peace and blessedness. And so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to invite you to turn to Revelation 21. In case you didn't know, I want to prove to you that there's something good to come. I say that, you know, it's all good. It's God's word. It's good. You listen as I read verses 1 through 8 of Revelation chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, These words will sound familiar. It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Amen. But verse 8. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So we see at the end of the age, at the end of the age, there will be the end of the world, the end of worldly society, and the end of sin. And sinners, can you imagine that? Can you just picture a world where you won't sin anymore? You can't. You can't. Maybe you can. You can teach me. Sin wells up within me because I'm a sinner. 
Can you imagine that not happening? Every thought truly captive to Christ, set free from all the bondage of sin, fully, finally. Can you imagine that? I can't wait. This world is passing away, my friends. This world is passing away just as the world around you passes by when you're riding in the car down the highway. Are we there yet? No, not yet, but we're going to be there soon. We are going to be there soon. So in the meantime, buckle up. Buckle up. We have a destination for sure. Our journey is going to come to an end, and I'm not just talking about our journey through this book. The journey of this world is going to come to an end, and in the meantime, I want you to join with me in taking to heart the words of the Apostle Peter, who after he discussed this very coming end that we've been looking at here in Revelation, over in his second letter, chapter 3, he asks a question. Knowing that the world is going to pass away, he says, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought we be? What sort of people ought we to be in lives of holiness and godliness? That was his question. That's his application. I think I'll follow in the footsteps of the apostle. How now will you then live? He concludes, he gives some points. He says, be diligent to be found by the Lord without spot or blemish and at peace. Count the patience of our Lord as salvation. And then he says, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thanks, Peter. Those are good words. Be found in Christ. Be found in Christ. Be found in Christ. Are you in Christ? Are you in him? This isn't, are you doing X, Y, and Z? I'm asking you, are you in Christ? Is he your savior? Are you in Christ? The days are hard. The days are long. I don't like being buckled into a car seat in the back seat, not being able to move. That's kind of what this life can feel like. So may God grant us grace, not just to say, are we there yet? But I can't wait till we get there because I get to be with you. Amen and amen. Would you grab your bulletin?